Wow, we're live from the, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go anywhere with that. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. It's Friday. We're going to do some quick introductions and uh, work our way in reverse order, and then we're going to get to the show. You're in the green room uh, where we share a little bit about what's going on before the show begins. So we're going to start. Um, I'm Ray Wong with uh, you know one of the founders and host of Disrupt TV. We've got our awesome ho producer, L, and of course, my awesome co-host and co-founder, Bala Ashar, and we're going to go to our guest, so Rafaela. So um, where are you calling in from, and what are you talking about today? Oh, well, I'm calling in from super sunny today, Santa Monica, and uh, we will be talking today about XR, anything that is augmented reality, virtual reality, and the special computing world in general, so with the addition of AI and 5G. Awesome. Devani, where are you calling in from, and what are we talking about today? I'm calling in from San Francisco, and we're going to be talking about the future of automation for DevOps and my company, Transposit. Awesome. Rumbooks, Rumbooks, and Rumbooks. And of course, Tony, um, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? Tony Ely. Uh, I lead Honeywell Quantum Solutions, and we are talking about quantum computing and what it's going to be able to do for the world. Awesome. Very, very cool. Well, with that, hey, we're going to go into the show. The show is sponsored by Robots and Pencils. And more importantly, check them out. And of course, I'll do us the honors, and let's get to the count. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, he is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and this year he's going to come out with his new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, uh, sometime in the next few months. He's a regular television, business, and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Business, and Bloomberg. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, wonderful co-host Vala Ashtar. As everybody knows, one of the top people to follow on Twitter. You have CIOs, CMOs, CEOs look to him for inspiration. And more importantly, he's a keynote speaker. He's on business TV and an author himself. But it's never about us. It's always about our awesome guests. And this year, we're going to take our world into the quantum level. So let's talk a little bit about our next guest and what he's, what he's doing. So There's no better way to go to quantum level than our first guest. Tony Utley is the president of Honeywell Quantum Solutions Business Unit. Tony is responsible for the overall business direction and performance. He and his team uh, develop and implement uh, business strategy, development of new offerings, including consulting, project engineering, component and subsystem development, as well as overall construction and operation of trapped ion quantum information systems. Previously, Tony was president of Honeywell's Advanced Connected Sustainability Technologies business. Prior to Honeywell, Tony was principal at Boston Consulting Group, BCG. For the 10 years prior to his role at BCG, he held a number of management and engineering positions with NASA at the Johnson Space Center. Welcome, Tony, to the Shrock TV. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Tony, thanks a lot for being here. And I know we mentioned quantum and we mentioned Honeywell in the same sentence. And I think for people who haven't been following what's going on, and you know, you and I have been talking for some time and we know what's what's out there, talk to people, tell Sheriff with us, what's what's Honeywell up to? And you know, what is Honeywell doing in quantum computing? Like what, what is Honeywell as a company? And then of course, now what's been going on? Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, it's uh Honeywell is such a recognized name that you could probably grab a hundred people and they would all say, yeah, I've heard of Honeywell. And those same hundred people may not have any idea what Honeywell actually does. And so that's, that's the thing about quantum computing is that Honeywell is in 10 million buildings around the world uh, doing building control systems and security systems. Uh, Honeywell has been a part of every human spaceflight program, a part of NASA uh, for every single one. Uh, Honeywell controls some of the biggest petrochemical plants in the world. Just in this last year, within this pandemic, crazy pandemic environment, Honeywell released offerings that did uh, UV uh, within planes to be able to do decontamination and, and make them safe to fly. We've made, we make uh, N95 respirators that are used by first responders and medical professionals around the world. Uh, we have an offering that's called Forge which is uh, an enterprise performance management 
uh, software as a service that allows uh, us to help customers take those edge devices from the IoT, bring the data in, and make real live uh, actions to be able to increase energy efficiency, to increase productivity, all of that just in 2020. Wow. Uh, and what's interesting is it takes all of those pieces to be able to integrate together to do quantum computing. Wow. Uh, this month, uh, Tony, you wrote an article in Forbes titled, Quantum Computing is Here, Are You Ready for It? And in the article, which was a fantastic article, guys, Google it. Hopefully, maybe our producer can put a link into the chat. But in the article, you wrote, when the history of quantum computing is written, it will show that now was the time that visionaries separated themselves from industry, uh, from Luddites, leaders from laggards and first movers from followers. And you ended the article. In the, in the middle, you described the key components of quantum computing. So I found it really rich in terms of educational content for those beginners like myself trying to understand quantum. Uh, you ended with the work must start today. If you have to wait and see, you're already late. Tell us about Honeywell, uh, passion, focus, and energy, and your team in terms of why you believe quantum computing is uh, one of the most disruptive technologies of the 21st century. Yeah, you know, first is, if you can imagine, Right, rewind yourself 60 years, being at the beginning of classical computing, mm -hmm. thinking about 60 years from now, what is this going to do to the world? And you probably couldn't have imagined, couldn't have imagined where this was gonna go and how ubiquitous computing would be and that we would have, we'd have computers that we'd carry around with us that had more power than any of the spacecrafts that, <laughs> that had been built. That is where we are with quantum computing. It will change the world in terms of the kinds of things that, that it will be able to do. Um, it has the opportunity at, at its, you know, at its culmination to be able to help us design from the beginning pharmaceutical products that are going to be tailor-made for individual people. It has the ability to be able to develop materials where before you've ever had to make it and test it, you've been able to simulate what is going to be able to do and how it's going to react with other things. It has the ability to think about uh, fraud detection uh, and, and those events that uh, are happening that we may not even as people be able to see and interpret as, uh, as things that are, that are impacting our financial institutions and certainly our personal lives. And then things like, you know, there's roughly 30% of the world's food supply that's wasted. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not because there are, aren't people in need of, of food. It's because getting all of that point A food to point B people is a really complex logistical problem. And the promise of quantum computing helps tackle some of those problems. Amazing. Yeah, no, we're definitely seeing a lot of different ways you look at uh, how to solve problems. This new type of computing is actually changing the way we look at this. Uh, but you guys have done something really interesting with um, quantum uh, in terms of quantum computing. I mean, it's not just building the hardware. It's not just building, you know, the, uh, the systems that are around it. Um, you've built out an ecosystem. So let's talk about this. Like, where do you see quantum computing like a year from now? Uh, and then about three years from now in terms of what that ecosystem looks like, who's jumping in, what type of companies are part of this? Uh, why are they so excited? Sure. You know, and as exciting as some of those things I, I said are, you then have to rewind back that 60 years, right? <laughs> and say, here's where we started. So, where we started. Uh, but it's a, it's a big moment, right? And I, I call this the emergent era, which is quantum computers didn't exist and now they exist. That's, that's a profound moment in time where you're able to actually do quantum computing. Um, we're, tackling these, these problems, and we are shrinking them down to fit on the size quantum computers that exist today. And that's a really important time. Uh, and, and the reason it's so important is because as you expand quantum computing, it expands exponentially, which means there are, there's a very short window where you can fact check that quantum computing answer with a classical computer and mm -hmm. better make sure it's right. Once you cross that threshold, there won't be a classical computer powerful enough on earth to be able to say, is that the right answer? So, so building that trust right now is absolutely critical. And it takes an ecosystem. Uh, 
It takes not only the companies like Honeywell that are building out these incredible systems, it takes people who know how to write the software that goes on top of a quantum computer. And it's not the same kind of software that exists on classical computers. Uh, it, it takes folks that are typically called theorists, which is a cross between a mathematician and a physicist. And it takes thinking about the problem set really differently. There aren't many of those people on the planet. And so trying to identify them, where are they and how do you get them involved in this ecosystem means having the right companies, the right yeah. academic institutions, the right startups, all involved early so that we can be focused together on solving some of these really big problems. You hinted at that, Tony, in your article. You wrote what quantum computers need in order to realize their full potential is not just smart scientists who are capable of programming them, but also strategic business leaders who are capable of envisioning the brilliant use cases where they can add value. And you reference aeronautics, healthcare, logistics, and you said just infinite use cases, but all industries eventually will have opportunities to think about new business model innovation and adding that layer of contextual intelligence that you just can't get from traditional computing today. My question is going back to Ray's three year horizon, maybe five, maybe 10, are we looking at QC as a service, quantum computing as a service where in order to democratize and scale this capability, you're going to connect your cloud, my company is in the business of cloud, <laughs> to, a, to a Honeywell QC as a service uh, model where we can do that heavy intensive computing and have this orchestration across multi-cloud environments where you don't have to necessarily invest an army of data scientists and templates and best practices. You go to someone like Honeywell who's going to be doing it for two decades by the end of this decade and you leverage your expertise to really accelerate adoption. Absolutely. And you know, we, we call it abstraction layers, right? You, you don't want to have to have physicists on standby to help you figure out whatever your problem is, whether it was a logistics problem or a, or a routing problem or a, a chemistry problem. You want to be able to have your own subject matter experts do those things. And so what we are working on with that ecosystem are, is building out those abstraction layers so that, so that people can be their own industry subject matter experts without having to think about what the quantum computer is doing. Because if you do, it'll blow your mind. If you know that when you send this command, you're having an individual atoms move across and be, and be paired together and be hit with lasers, uh, you, might, you might actually just go, wow, I, I, I can't do that. That's all happening behind the scenes. Uh, what, what it takes and the reason why the people who are involved today are such visionaries is because the conversation right now isn't, hey, I can save you $50 million if you use this. It is absolutely not that. The entire industry is not there. Uh, it is, here's what we're doing with your use case. And again, pick one, right? We're, you're trying to develop a new molecule or you're trying to see how this molecule interacts with certain other parts of the environment. Imagine you're trying to do a new uh, solar uh, film and you're trying to figure out uh, how that is going to, to translate its energy uh, through your system. Being able to do some of that simulation is really complex, super complex from a, from a classical computing standpoint. And so we can take a problem like that, shrink it down to run it on computers that exist today. Mm -hmm. And then as these quantum computers expand their capability, you expand the size of that problem. So you're literally plotting out when this is going to cross that threshold and become exceptionally meaningful to your business. And that's really why these visionaries are, are focused on quantum computing today. You know, this, this is great stuff. I mean, solar heat gain efficiency to weather forecast modeling and, you know, you know what people are trying to look sure at to your molecule yeah. development. Uh, but there's something special about what happens in terms of the way you guys are looking at error correction and stability of the qubits. And we'll geek out just a little bit for those folks that are <laughs> following you because they want to geek out with you. Um, so talk a little about trapped iron and why is trapped iron a different approach? Because, you know, it all comes down to error correction, but there's something that you're doing. And there's also something that you're doing that like we love because uh, we just wrote a report on this talking about how you scale out from H0 all the way out to your future models, right? It's right. not, it's like a very deliberate and very precise approach. And, and Forbes in 2020 actually wrote about Honeywell's approach producing the most accurate 
So it's not just about speed, speed to the wrong answer. It's not helpful for business. So it's, it's super interesting in the way that you're approaching it because uh, you know, the, the, the accuracy is your, your North star. You guys are outstanding. That's you guys are saying it better than, than uh, even most of the people in the organization. Uh, it is all about quality right now. You know, we, the industry is going to scale, but right now it is what can you do with the quantum bits, these qubits that you have today, and what drives those that ability to be useful is having very low error rates, this high quality. Uh, why do we have low error rates? Because our qubit is an atom. It's an atom of, of a substance called ytterbium. And fortunately, Mother Nature made every single one of those atoms identical. Uh, the way to get them to work is we strip off an electron, and that makes it a charged particle, an ion. And once that individual atom is a charged particle, I can manipulate it using electric fields. Uh, once you start with a perfect qubit, then every other error is something that you've introduced because of the infrastructure you've put around it. And if you're really good, you know where those sources of errors are coming from, and you can mitigate them one by one so that the quality of your system is incredible. And that's what we did. We took a whole bunch of what we called technical debt to make sure that we could have this quantum charge coupled device architecture that would allow us to physically move atoms. Just, just entertain me for a second. Take your hands, make little, make little cups out of them. <laughs> Within your hands right now are a trillion, trillion atoms. That's what's in your hands right now, a trillion, trillion atoms. We take individual atoms and we make them our qubits and, and manipulate them that around. Yes, that is super complex. <laughs> that is incredibly complex. But once you're able to do it, wow, can you uh, take advantage of scaling? And that's really where we are now. Tony, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. Just the way you talk about what you do, it's like a kid in a candy store. I love oh, it. <laughs> uh, you know, my final question. So what you talk about ecosystem. What are some of the software partners that are emerging in this field? Who do you look for as the president of the division in terms of who you want to strategically partner with to advance quantum computing? Yeah, we've we've done work with a number of, of really important uh, companies out there. Companies like QCWare and Rocco, companies like Bayet and Accenture. And, uh, and we've made even some investments in a couple of companies. And those companies are Zapata Computing and Cambridge Quantum Computing. And it, it takes very tight alliances with, with who are not just in the ecosystem, that's important, but what we do, the way we do quantum computing is different. It has features that you can't do on other people's computers. Things that you might think are just a present everywhere, but think about if then statement. If then statements are like the absolute foundation of classical computing. Yep. We only company that can do the quantum equivalent of an if-then statement. Wow. Imagine you're writing software for doing a quantum algorithm. You can't put that in your algorithm if you're doing it on other people's. You absolutely want to do that if you're using Honeywell's because it makes it so much more powerful when you do. So having these really tight, close relationships with, with some of these partners is, uh, is important. That's amazing. Wow, quantum logic gates and uh, if thens. It's gonna be fun. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and yes, I have I have the most fabulous job on the planet. I love it. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, we <laughs> we are here with the one and only Tony Utley, president at Honeywell Quantum Solutions. Um, you can't follow him on Twitter, but you can follow his company at Honeywell. And more importantly, check out what they're doing because this is one of the revolutionary approaches to quantum computing. We're gonna hear hearing more about this uh, in the next couple of years, and of course over the next decades. So thanks a lot for being here, Tony. Happy Friday. Oh, Tony, thank you for pleasure. changing the world. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> that, uh, I imagine few, you know, a few years back when he was at BCG thinking about manipulating atoms. That's uh, what a career trajectory. It was like cash cows, our, our, stars, uh, uh, quantum computing. There we go. <laughs> so. If you could just turn those atoms to Bitcoin, I'd be super happy. Uh, Trillions of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a few, just a handful. Yeah, you know, the super our next really amazing well. guest. 500 million in the lotto. We can try that as well. <laughs> but our next guest. <laughs> so. Our next 
Our next brilliant guest is Devani Lama, CEO of Transposit, uh, the DevOps automation company. Devani and Transposit team are creating a world where humans interact with machines successfully to manage today's complex technology stacks. Devani is also managing director at leading venture capital firm Sutter Hill Ventures. Prior to Transposit, Devani began her career at Google and then spent seven years at Splunk where she saw the rise of big data and was one of the early product managers working on building out visualization and analytics. Devani was responsible for product strategy roadmap and execution for Splunk's marquee product, Splunk Enterprise. You can follow Devani on Twitter at D-I-V-L-A-M-S. Welcome Devani to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for being here on Friday. And more importantly, we're talking about this really hot area of DevOps. And uh, you call these data-driven runbooks. So we just jump straight into it. What the heck are data-driven runbooks? Paul <laughs> and I had to look it up. We're like, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> is this automation? Is it DevOps? Is it like, it's a brand new category here. So, oh, yeah. No, we're, we're right on the cutting edge here. It's super fun. Uh, I, I would disagree with Tony. I think that I have uh, the best job in the world. Uh, <laughs> so, so what is a runbook? So uh, runbooks are traditionally documentation that sits in systems like Confluence, Google Docs, and someone's head. Um, the problem is that it's literally documentation. So it's often out of date. You don't know the last time it was used. You don't know if it worked the last time it was used. And when people ask me, like, what is a runbook? Uh, I like to orient them to things like the checklist manifesto. So runbooks are basically like glorified checklists for technical people. They're what tells you what to do when something goes wrong. So when the website's down, when you have a problem in your environment, uh, you know, you go in and you use a runbook to help guide you through those steps because these systems are really, really complex. The problem is that, again, those run books are uh, often out of date. You don't know the last time they were used. You don't know if they worked the last time they were used. The person who wrote it might not be at the company anymore. Uh, so what Transposit's doing is we're taking all of this documentation and human institutional knowledge and we're codifying it into systems that automate them. Uh, so our run books make it so that when something goes down, instead of having a human operator who has to go in and, you know, kind of check all these different pieces and rely on their intuition, you have a system that's a lot smarter and is able to guide them and in many cases even resolve the issue for them without the human having to get involved. Wow. <laughs> Prior to joining Salesforce, I ran global contact centers uh, for a technology company and it, for 10 years and speed to resolution is the number one factor for loyalty customer loyalty. Yeah. Where were you when I was running these call centers? <laughs> I could have used these run books. Oh my God, I would, we would have been heroes. Uh, so how did you, how did you and your co-founder Tina, how did you meet and when did you realize, look, we can transform industries by really improving execution velocity. How did, how did, you, how did, how did that come about? So Tina and I met through Sutter Hill and, uh, you know, Tina's background is really interesting. I, I come from the enterprise world and uh, Tina comes from the consumer world. Uh, so I spent my entire career working on machine data, data visualization, analytics. I'm a data person through and through. And, uh, you know, Tina comes at this from a very different perspective. She was early on at Apple. Uh, she then went to Google and worked on Blogger and on Google News. And then she was a very early employee at Twitter. And so Tina saw the rise of roles like SRE uh, at Google, got to you know kind of experience that very much from the operator consumer side. And so when she and I met, you know, we realized that there was this like source of data and this this type of data that wasn't really being captured in operational environments, which is human data. So things like the chats that we have in Slack, the things that we talk about and do as part of our processes that, that were being dumped into systems like uh, Jira or ServiceNow, and no one was ever really looking at it, mining it for data on how you might be able to automate. So we kind of took that, uh, joined forces, and and you know now, now we're here at Transposit. Awesome. No, that's really cool. I mean, there's all this information that's sitting out there and not being used. That's like the worst thing, like when data sits there and it's totally not being applied. Um, so, hey, we continue to see massive growth in, in hybrid cloud, uh, and that's picking up big time. And, you know, and this is really changing the world and hybrid multi-cloud. It's asking for greater automation because we're trying to react more quickly. Uh, we've got different environments. We're figuring out where they're going. So how should organizations be thinking about cloud platforms um, as they're looking to mature automation initiatives? 
Yeah, you know, I think that uh, the, the, the there's really two driving forces. One of them you guys already talked about, which is, uh, you know, kind of consumer experience uh, of our solutions and our tools. So, you know, anyone who's running a digital service these days has massive uptime requirements. They have a lot of stability and experience requirements, and those are really hard to keep up with. But the other thing that people don't talk about is that the cloud was supposed to simplify things. And instead, what it did was added this enormous amount of complexity, especially as you start getting into multi-cloud. Uh, so if you look at your, your standard environment these days, you've got this like massive mess of SaaS applications that are serving, uh, you know, kind of just to have a simple service. You've got a ton of SaaS applications. You've got multiple cloud services that you might be using. You've got the infrastructure tier. And, and I think that that's really the, um, the primary challenge that companies are having today and the thing that's driving automation as a priority for teams. Mm -hmm. uh, we're working with a lot of companies that have instituted reliability engineering teams, and they're actually renaming those teams to be automation and reliability engineering teams. Because the reality is that no single person, we call these people cloud wizards. Uh, there's probably a few that are listening to this, uh, to this recording or listening to it live right now, uh, where they just can't like bend space and time on cloud. But like, there's not that many of them. So if you like go out and you look at the world, you can't find someone that has uh, 10 years of SRE experience because like they just exist. don't exist. You know, <laughs> this is all brand new. We're just training these people up. So to me, complexity is the name of the game and simplifying complexity is where vendors like us have to help. Because you know it's not going to come from the cloud services. You know they're just busy spitting out more and more solutions uh, to teams and and increasing that operational overhead every day. Ray, you and I got to find a way to get cloud wizards in our title. I mean, I've, I've just made it to do <laughs> to, my, to my bucket list. Cloud wizard, I love that. Well, you talked about automation. You talked about reliability. I remember a couple of years ago, Elon Musk talking about it could be dangerous to over automate. Um, and somewhat unrealistic to, uh, to fully automate. And so what is human in the loop automation and how can it improve the lives of folks in DevOps and SREs and even other engineers yeah, so I think about automation on a spectrum, right? So uh, you've got things that are fully automatable, and I think of those things as uh, deterministic problems. So a deterministic problem is one where, you know, every single time that you run into that problem, you solve it the same way. Uh, so things that are uh, really good candidates for automation historically have been things that are consistent think back office tasks, right? There's a reason why uh, areas like HR and finance uh, have made some of the most progress on the automation side of businesses today, because every single time you close the books, the steps are pretty similar. Uh, and if they're not, you go to jail, so. And if, you, if they're not, you go to jail, exactly. <laughs> so you need them to be consistent. Uh, whereas- to be very consistent, yeah. If you look at something like DevOps or SRE, you know, every single problem is gonna be unique because if it wasn't unique, then you would have solved it beforehand. You would have prevented it from happening. So the question is, how do you let humans be good at what humans are good at, which is human intuition, context, uh, and let machines be really good at what machines are good at? You know, like logging into systems, restarting servers, communicating between machines and making that simpler. And for us, human in the loop automation is really about uh, enabling humans to step into that spectrum and making the machines be guides, support, let the humans be basically in the cockpit, uh, but give them that information and that speed of actionability uh, through a system that's built for that. And, and I really think that that's kind of where automation is going in general, uh, instead of you know the, the, the big boogeyman that, that Elon Musk sometimes talks about, which is like replacing <laughs> humans wholesale. Sure, sure. No, it's a great can point, you, right? Can you just elaborate, I mean, do you, do you, does your company help your clients uh, assign a deterministic score to workflows in order to identify candidates for automation? How does that process of engaging your company where you help move a client from, you know, from uh, immature to mature use of automation in terms of improving efficiency and consistency in their business? Yeah, we're big in, uh, in what we call incremental automation. So um, someone, when they start using uh, Transposit, you know, your first version of automation might be a couple of docs. It might be just some documentation, a checklist, a really basic checklist. And we help you take small 
bites out of that and do a little bit at a time uh, up until the point where you get to that full automation scenario. So, you know, we often start off with customers with their processes where it might be an incident process. And the first thing we might do with them is let's make sure that we can create the Slack room. We can invite the right people to it. We can get some data in front of them that might be relevant, you know, get, get them organized. We have a customer that um, it used to take them 30 minutes before they had uh, this type of guide. And, you know, with systems like Transposit and having all of that acceleration, have been able to massively speed up the amount of time it takes them to get everyone in, in, in the room. Um, but then you can start, you know, we have a lot of analytics in our product. Uh, it helps us see which run books are being used the most uh, and, and start providing some data uh, that lets us start identifying candidates for automation. Uh, so that might be, uh, you know, an issue that happens every Monday. Well, if we see that issue every Monday, then perhaps we know that we can restart that Kubernetes uh, pod automatically for you. And that's going to resolve it 95% of the time. And if it doesn't, we can have a human step in to, to take over. Um, so I think uh, if you if you take your automation strategy and you say like my goal is to be fully automated this year, then you're never going to succeed. It's just a it's an insurmountable task. Yeah. Uh, and what we what we tell our our customers and and help them on is how do you think about this as as a thing that happens incrementally, step by step. No, that's amazing. I mean, we're talking about a you know global two hundred twenty billion dollar automation market uh, just on process automation. We're looking at about ninety billion by twenty twenty two. This is a hot market. A lot of lessons learned. You know, I like your way of thinking about where we automate because one of the frameworks that we've put out at Constellation is thinking about you know when will we have full intelligent automation? When will we augment the machine with a human? Right, figuring out you know all the corrections, why we make exceptions, like why was it broken? Why did you make that process different? And then of course, when will we augment the human with a machine so we can get to decision velocity, make speed, speedy decisions, get to the next best action, figure out what we need to do. And of course, when are we going to trust human judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And those are the big four questions we're going to be asking for a while. Now, we've got RPA on one side trying to help you figure out, hey, okay, that's the beginning. People are taking baby steps. Hey, cool macro. Um, and then on the other end, we're talking about full automation. Uh, what are lessons we can learn from RPA to what you guys are doing with Runbooks? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, you look at RPA deployments out there and companies like UiPath and Automation Anywhere have really helped uh, show that there's an enormous market here that's going to hit every single business unit uh, in companies. Uh, but I talk to CIOs every day that have implemented RPA initiatives. And uh, you see kind of this like these success stories. It's like the haves and the have nots. There's certain yes. people that are like sitting there and saying, RPA has changed my business. And there's a lot of other people who've said, I spent a lot of money on RPA and I still haven't really seen the business results. So what did the, the CIOs who feel like they've gotten value out of it do? Well, they identified specific problems. They uh, made sure that those were well scoped. They, I, you know, they they tied them to business initiatives, and they they made sure that automation wasn't just like an automation high level ask. It was something that was happening to specific groups, and that's part of the reason why Transposit focuses so much on DevOps specifically and mm -hmm. SRE teams. Uh, we believe that best practices, pre-built examples, a lot of out-of-the-box stuff is going to go a long way towards helping customers adopt this uh, because we know that it's just overwhelming, right? It's overwhelming if you're if you're told, hey, automate. Like, where do I start? What do I do first? Uh, and, and I think that that's kind of where we are as an industry right now is helping guide people to where they should start on their automation journey and how to make sure that they don't get in over their, you know, go over their skis too much uh, when they get started. Great point. Uh, did the um, did the pandemic, did the health crisis, and which led to the economic crisis, accelerate the interest in your company? Do you now have technology line of business leaders or even CEOs um, really focusing on efficiency and optimization uh, as a result of the pandemic? What was the effect on on on, on your business? And can you uh, project in, in terms of uh, what companies are going to need even more? as we continue to, you know, the bat battle of uh, the, the pandemic and the economic crisis that we're in. Yeah, you know, earlier this year or earlier last year, uh, you know, similar to uh, a lot of other executives, I was sitting uh, watching uh, COVID and, and the, the health crisis emerge and was worried because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I think everyone who's into the digitization space for enterprises has seen a massive, massive boost for their businesses. And that includes us. Uh, 
the first six months of the pandemic, I think, probably accelerated the roadmaps for the majority of our customers by six years. Uh, wow, as they, wow. as they realized, wow. you know, I have to move from uh, a place where I have people that are uh, working from an office every day to working remotely. I need to have all those tools built out. I need to make sure that there's consumer grade experiences. My services are going digital. I'll, I'll tell you a story that um, uh, I really like. So there's a service in San Francisco, <laughs> which is a, uh, uh, a fisherman's collective. Uh, and I love seafood. So at the beginning of the pandemic, they were selling only to uh, restaurants and the restaurants all started closing down. And so they had to figure out what they were going to do with all of this fish that they were catching in the bay. The fish didn't get the memo, uh, you know, and there was still a lot of supply and fishermen whose lives, you know, like their livelihoods depended on this uh, route. So they switched over to selling to consumers. And the first order I made, I had to do through a paper form and an invoice process. And now they have a whole website. They have a digital service. They have an app wow. coming out. Uh, so every business out there is becoming digital. And I don't think that even with vaccines, like that's that that progress isn't going away. People are still going. Uh, there was this great article that came out uh, today from the WeWork CEO where he said that um, they've surveyed people and only 12% of employees want to stay remote full time after the pandemic. 88% of people want to move into more, you know, anywhere from full to hybrid, right? Like two to three days from the office. Sure. So you're still going to have to be able to support people working remotely. All this digitization isn't going to take a step back. And for businesses like ours, again, there aren't enough DevOps engineers. There aren't enough SREs out there to support all of that. So the, the name of the game right now is how do you do more with less? How do you automate and scale uh, a business that's really, really hard to scale? Yeah, absolutely. That is, it. that is a great point. You know, that happened with me with ABS Seafood as well. They became true fish and went direct to consumer. If you're looking for a sashimi grade uh, in uh, San Francisco, uh, but hey, there's there's something else going on in the city. What's happening? What's happening with the enterprise startup scene? Is there an enterprise startup scene? Are we all moving to Austin, Texas, and uh, hanging out <laughs> in Seattle? Like, what, what's going on? Right? Is is it the same vibe? I've lost that vibe. You know, there are no more startup parties. We know that. Right. But but are the are the VCs still there? Are the is the infrastructure there? Is the talent still here? What's going on? So Yeah, I was on a I was on a call with a few other VCs earlier this week and we were talking a little bit about what comes next, what happens once we're at full vaccination. And I'm an optimist for San Francisco. I think that there's you can simultaneously say that there are, you know, Austin's probably going to be a big winner out of this uh, mm -hmm. because I do see Austin becoming a, a center for technology innovation uh, in a way that, you know, has been growing for the last 10 years. Like they say, it takes you 10 years uh, to become an overnight success, right? So like Austin has been <laughs> building out that tech scene for a very long time and Austin, Denver, uh, you know, they're going to continue seeing growth there and businesses that are going to be able to distribute. And that's good for everyone. That said, it's not just San Francisco, it's Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley still has a lot of talent here. And you know, in businesses like mine, uh, the majority of our employees are really excited to go back to the office. So I am really optimistic that you're going to see a return to offices. I don't think that San Francisco is over as a tech hub. Uh, I've heard anecdotally of a few people uh, who are founders who've been moving into the city because rents are really cheap right now from a lot of people leaving. And then a lot of the people who left, you know, like they're not gone forever. Um, so it remains to be seen. Uh, and I'm, I'm still really, really bullish on Silicon Valley in general. No, that's wonderful to hear. So we're not all going to Tulum, Austin, and uh, Seattle. So we'll all be okay. Maybe you can work from Austin or uh, or Miami every once in a while. Like I'm really excited about our our puzzle uh, uh, 2021. <laughs> <laughs> so Devani Lama, CEO of Transposite, we're here with her. You can check her out on Twitter at D I V L A M S. And we're talking about run books and more importantly, you should check them out as well. So thanks a lot for being here on the show. Happy Friday and hope to see you in the green room afterwards. Thank you. That was awesome. Um, so much, <laughs> so much innovation, so much opportunities for companies that help other companies continue their digital transformation. We have a champion here to speak to transformation and new emerging technologies. Rafaela Camara is a former managing director for Accenture's extended reality XR practice where she served as global head of innovation and strategy. In her role, Rafaela defined the company-wide Accenture XR positioning and growth strategy. 
Uh, Rafaela also contributes uh, or collaborates with ventures and mergers and acquisitions, including helping to raise uh, 40 million plus in funding. She regularly serves as a subject matter expert on XR, uh, speaking at industry conferences. She's a sought after um, uh, expert by media with articles published in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Venture Beat, among others. Currently, Rafaela is an advisor to the Women in XR Fund, WXR Fund, and a board member of Advanced Imaging Society, where she chairs the Executive Committee on Inclusion and Diversity. Rafaela is also advising market makers and early stage companies in the spatial computing ecosystem. So that's XR, AI, and 5G on development of products, strategic partnerships, and brand building plans. You can follow Rafaela on Twitter at RCA, M-E-R-A-L-A. -A. Welcome, Rafaela, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much for having me on a Friday. And sorry for having such a difficult name to say. <laughs> it's my mom's fault. We're <laughs> uh, uh, speaking to Vala, so I'm, uh, I'm in the same camp. <laughs> OK. Our, our names are short. People can still can't pronounce our last name, so we're OK. People just call me V. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but hey, thank you. Welcome. And Rafael is now our Constellation Orbits member. And so you'll be reading and hearing about her on extended reality, mixed reality, um, and, and where we're going with spatial computing. But let's start with definitions. And I want to get to you at some point talking about what happened at CES as well. So yeah. let's start talking about, you know, definitions. We hear XR, MR, AR, VR, spatial computing. What's the proper modern term? But what are all these other terms that are also being floated out there as well? Yeah, I uh, know it's it's a very good question, and and I brought props, so maybe it's a little bit easier Excellent. to. But first off, XR is nothing but a way to say AR, VR, MR, and just not to have to say all three of them, but basically comprises all of them. But let's 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 start with AR. First off, it's been around for a while. I was already doing projects with um, uh, muscle milk and shark coming out of a bottle in AR in 2010. Uh, one simple way of thinking about AR is what you can do with your mobile phone. Um, anytime that you apply a lens, a snap lens, maybe you see the dog ears, that's an example of AR. So there is tons of that. There has been a lot of that for a long time. The more pure way of thinking about AR would be to think about using AR with glasses like these. These are the Enreal glasses that have already launched. Wow. Hey, I want one of those. <laughs> They have already launched in, uh, they don't even look too bad, right? Uh, <laughs> they look great. In Asia, in Korea, and they're launching in the UK and uh, Spain through Vodafone. If you see, they are powered um, by a 5G phone. So the phone acts as the pointer and also gives it power. And in the future, they are going to be um, wireless and they're going to be powered by through a 5G uh, tower and edge computing down at the tower level. So this is most likely something uh, along what we're talking about when we start talking about, you know, having information directly in front of your eyes. After that, we have what is called virtual reality. And this is an Oculus Quest 1. Um, so a VR headset is basically a, a, a device that allows you to be fully, fully immersed in a specific situation or in a specific experience, which means you don't see any of the real world, but you are fully immersed in a specific situation, or it could be a movie, it could be shopping, it could be a game, whatever else it might be, or you could be in space. And that uh, full immersion really gets you so close to that specific experience and environment that you feel like you're there. So from an empathy perspective or from a feelings perspective, that's what you want to strive for or go towards if that's what you're looking for. Just talking about numbers to give you an idea, um, uh, obviously there are what, 3.5 billion smartphones and 3 million are all AR and the other ones are AR enabled in any case. And we're talking about from a Quest perspective, uh, in 2020, uh, Quest and Facebook sold uh, about 770,000 for a total of about 1.5 million from the beginning, so about two years, two and a half years. Obviously, there are a lot of other headsets from Sony, uh, particularly used for, for games and, and other things like that. But that gives you an idea of the differences in mass and how many there are out there. That's amazing. Uh, and the numbers continue to grow. So when you look back, and we'll get to raise questions about what was super interesting at CES this week. When you look at look back at 2020, is there a particular brand or type of uh, use case or advancements in any one of these technologies that that really stood out? Uh, you know, who are, you know, there were, I, I saw in my Twitter feed, you know, Apple really interested in getting into the space and 
uh, perhaps even a, a prototype version of their glass, but who are some of the players that made some really leap uh, or, or, or forward progress um, in 2020? Yeah, I would say this. Uh, 2020 obviously was a, a different year. Mm. We all expected, uh, we kept on watching AR and VR from an enterprise perspective and from a consumer perspective. And in an enterprise, we see tons of usage when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to training or manufacturing uh, or collaboration. And even more so needed now that, as we were talking before, we, you know, we don't go to the office as much and we need to figure out ways to automate. But from a consumer perspective, as I was mentioning, going from a phone to the glasses that I was showing you will take a little bit longer. We expect um, Apple, Snap, uh, Facebook, uh, but basically everyone else coming out with their own version of AR glasses, at least by 2023, maybe a little bit earlier, but by 2023. Uh, however, um, consumers have had their behaviors disrupted majorly this year. And they're either unwilling or unable to go to a store, to be in crowds or to travel. And even when we get back to some form of normalcy, some of those fears will stay. And they've also have gotten a lot more used to making their home their castle. So having a life much more lived at home. So brands need to figure out how to interact with consumers really everywhere anytime, anywhere. This idea of omnichannel really has extended and really must include AR and VR, which are the technologies that allow you to have that type of immersion. Consumers on the other side are looking for ways to interact. They are going to more and more um, uh, virtual venues when it comes to sports, when it comes to music. Sure. Uh, but also they're trying to, they want to figure out how do I now try that product on? How do I play with it? How do I see if that fits me? How do I get if that brand actually feels right for me. There is a study that Accenture did, I believe in uh, Australia, that says that 47% of consumers um, feel closer uh, to a specific product if they try it in an, immersion, in, a, in an immersive environment, and they would be willing to pay more if they could try to configure it or, or customize it or personalize it in their own way. So in 2020, really the, the, the big surprise was how do I take this technology and make sure that I can deliver? I can deliver uh, despite the technological hurdles that I still have. So what we've seen is a proliferation of mostly AR mobile solutions and also web VR solutions. So I can go down the, the you know, a, a variety of, of different examples, but even when we don't know that it's XR or that it's AR, we now expect to be able to put filters on our faces anytime that we communicate. We expect to be able to see if our furniture fits in our home. And if we don't find that, we think that the app is broken. So Wayfair, Ikea. We expect to be able to see roughly what a different hair color or makeup will look like on us. So look at what Sephora is doing. Look at the companies that L'Oreal and Shiseido bought to be able to do that. Um, yep. YouTube even bought uh, something similar to be able to integrate interactivity and immersion on YouTube, um, on YouTube videos. Uh, but also look at the variety of sneakers that are being sold using AR. There are apps, AR apps, just for sneakers, but you've seen Gucci sell, sell things like that. Adidas has just announced they're going to do a, you know, an entire uh, suite of, of selling sneakers that way. Um, also the recreation of stores. How do I go and recreate a store and, and make sure that I'm walking through Dior did something with Obsess where they recreated their flagship store in, in Paris and on the Champs-Élysées, you can walk through it and then you can start picking up clothes. Or how do I bring that within a gaming environment? So Balenciaga launched their, their new line in, in an actual game that's really a VR game that's then brought on a, in mobile. And then one last example is, I believe it was American Eagle that did an AR pop-up shop yeah. in Snapchat and within about a month, because they launched it at the end of November, they sold $1.9 million, I believe, was the number. So that is now reality. Yeah, absolutely. My company invested in a startup called 3Kit that does augmented reality, interactive 3D modeling to enhance visual commerce. Yeah. So some of the luxury brands that you mentioned, Salesforce and 3Kit, are developing those mobile commerce capabilities with AR and interactive 3D where you can place furniture, 
luxury yeah. brands where you can look at luxury watches and jewelry with incredible shadows and intricacies that really feels like you're holding the, the merchandise. And the other one is um, you, you referenced digital twin of stores. That's another really hot space where you're creating literally a digital twin of your flagship store and you walk in and with arrows, you're going left, up and down and you can connect the merchandise. And the beauty of it is with the augmented reality overlay, you can see where the fabrics were sourced, where they were developed. It brings a, a cultural element and you're educated on how this beautiful thing was produced, yes. which is really in, uh, super, super, um, it's reducing uh, abandon rates from shopping carts significantly. Yes. It's reducing return rates significantly. Yes. And it's really increasing. Uh, so visual commerce is definitely, in my humble opinion, as you said, future of, of, of uh, incredible use cases for these technologies. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. I'm just- Oh, no, that's no, great. I, 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 everything you just said. You know how much I love commerce. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it is awesome thinking about the way, you know, just, just on returns, right? That's the biggest killer yeah. for what's yeah. going on in, in commerce. Like if you reduce returns and you're, you're, you're golden, right? You saw all the articles like where people are like, just don't return it. We don't want it. <laughs> like they'll bring it back, you know. It's cheaper for us not to process it. That, right? How much does it cost to get it back versus if you keep it? Right. So uh, it's definitely there. But uh, Rafael, you had some Rafael, you got some wonderful examples on consumer, what's happening. You also look at the enterprise and the enterprise use cases uh, for what's happening in extended reality. Let's talk about some of them and, and the ones that you think are, are going to make it, the ones that are a little bit more popular, you know, whether it's like a field service type of use case or something in that place. Like where's, where's enterprise going um, as well? So Yeah, look, uh, anything that has to do with training, you have to be able to train people uh, wherever they are. You cannot expect to have them fly to a specific location. And regardless of the pandemic, uh, you need to be able to do it faster. You need to be able to provide them for, for ways of doing that at home or wherever that might be. So training will continue being one of the main ways uh, uh, to, to grow XR, a, either AR or VR in a variety of different ways. Uh, manufacturing and specifically self-help for the person who is uh, at the manufacturing line. If they don't understand how to use something or they need to have support, uh, why have a second person there watch while they can have something in front of their eyes that teaches them how to do it. And by the way, they can call that person, that person can see what they're seeing and they can guide them. No reason why that would ever go away, they will continue on, on growing and collaboration. Collaboration is a little bit of a tougher one. Um, obviously, there are lots of different collaboration tools, but I think what's still missing there is um, expressions. You still cannot quite tell what is the expression, how somebody is really reacting to something. You can put in avatars, you can see their faces, you can do different things, but you cannot quite tell. And I've been in, in uh, I've even tried to do a, a virtual show uh, with a collaboration too. The problem we kept on having is we kept on looking at each other and we actually thought we knew what the other person was thinking or when they were going to speak, but we didn't. So we kept on like going on top of each other. So that is something, but that is something that Facebook, for example, they have, they, they have such realistic avatars that can really tell all your expressions. The only problem with that, this, those things still work really well in the lab, not so well yet to put them out for, for um, uh, full consumption. But once we have those, it's a completely different ball game. And there is no reason why we would not be doing at least part of our work in that every day. Sure, sure. Uh, after, I don't know, 60 some odd years, Consumer Electronics Show had their first virtual week. Uh, what impressed you most about CES this year? Any, any products really stood out in terms of their demo capabilities and their vision of the future? Well, I would say, first off, hats off to Verizon for giving such a thorough number of great examples and real life examples of how 5G can be used from automotive to sports, to music, to museums, to the public sector. I think uh, finally people are starting to understand that and they're starting to understand if 5G doesn't kill you, by the way. It always impresses me how uh, inventive the automotive sector keeps on being in reinventing itself and figuring out, okay, I'm not going to be selling cars much longer, not so many. What else am I going to do? They are really taking AR, VR, AI. They're taking everything and they're trying to recreate a capsule of yeah. uh, 
home entertainment slash office slash uh, you know enjoyment and travel and uh, and I, I think what they're doing is amazing. Going back to AR and VR, uh, it was already like this last year, but this year even more so. Glasses, glasses, glasses. You yeah. see where they were. So you've seen Panasonic uh, talking about the new VR glasses that actually go a little bit further back and they're much smaller. Uh, you've seen uh, View6 uh, talking about their microLED uh, glasses and when the, those are going to be coming out. And even right before CS, it was Lenovo with the Lenovo AR glasses that are similar in a way. They actually look kind of similar. They also, um, they, they show them being powered by a laptop putting them on and then being able to immediately see multiple screens in front of you while still being able to see your actual screen. So being able to work and augment your office and making it bigger than it really is. So I, I thought all those things were very interesting. Did I miss being there? Very much so. <laughs> oh my God, we miss it. Last year we were what, Molly and you were hanging out with Shelly Palmer and a whole bunch of other folks. Yeah, yeah. we, we introduced uh, the CRM integrated cockpit with Samsung and uh, uh, and, and so we were there for the whole week. It, it's it's amazing experience. If you've never been to CES and you're a technologist and you're a disruptor, innovator, it's 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 uh, it's really an amazing conference. I do I do agree that, that the keynotes were great. You know, folks like GM and folks like uh, LG. You know, lots of screens, lots of future of cars, and and I do believe as you know as we get to more and more closer to autonomous vehicles. Being entertained in the car and having access to information, uh, whether it's augmented virtual, is going to be even more important because you're no longer operating. You know, in, in, in the near future, you you're going to get in the car and you're a business person, you're a traveler, you're an explorer. So you want to be entertained, uh, and, and so you're going to see lots and lots of integration of these capabilities inside of vehicles, yeah. which is which, which we saw at CES. So, uh, great great recap. This is wonderful. So, Rafaela, thank you so much for being here. She's the advisor for the Women in XR Venture Fund, also Constellation Orbits member, and also CCE speaker. Thank you so much for being here. You can follow her on Twitter at R-C-A-M-E-R-A-L-A and catch up with her on Twitter. And more importantly, check out her blogs and blog posts that are coming out also on the Constellation website. There's a really good one on where XR is going. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank, thank you, you so much. Guys. Thank you. You're terrific. Wow. <laughs> Quantum. Quantum, Quantum automated DevOps, and extended reality. That's just all in not one. My, my, <laughs> actually, all three of them can get together. I think there's something to do here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's just my head hurts. Um, uh, so much so much wisdom and insights and forward-looking uh, content uh, in the last hour. It's uh, uh Amazing, amazing. This is why it's our favorite hour of the week for Rana. Next week is episode 220. Wow. Uh, uh, 220, yeah. We're going to, I think, get to 680 some odd interviews. Uh, Remember, it takes us 10 years to become famous, so we're like five in, so we got five more yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with you and I, it might be 12 years, but okay, we'll do our best for the next five. <laughs> we have uh, Glenn Rabi, CEO of Yellowfin, as our guest. We have Tasha Keeney. She's one of my favorite guests. Um, ARK Invest is just such visionary, so accurate in her projections. She's an analyst at ARK Investment. We're going to talk, I'm sure, about Tesla, battery, uh, lithium batteries, and any other emerging disruptive tech that uh, of interest to you. Follow Tasha and you'll see uh, her brilliant work. Um, and Molly Gavat, uh, tech executive entrepreneur, investor, and author of Templed by, sorry, Trampled by Unicorns. Trampled. Trampled. So Ray's Everybody Wants to Rule the World, uh, his new book, and now we have Trampled by Unicorn. It is a tell-all book. I think it's going to be interesting to hear what it's she says. Awesome. She also recently became the CEO of, a, of Techstars. So she was just oh, announced okay. CEO of Techstars this week. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So, oh, pretty wild. Oh, so. terrific. So we got visionaries. Again, if you're a visionary and a disruptor, this is where you come uh, to share your story. Ray, um, it has not been a quiet... Uh, month <laughs> in, on, across many fronts, uh, but your thoughts about uh, the show and next week and just in general. 
<laughs> you know what? A lot of ha lots happening. What's really exciting is we're still doing seeing massive innovation, right? Whether whether it's quantum, whether it's happening in automation, whether it's happening in XR, we're also seeing it in AI. Um, there's a lot of movement. Um, in the next three to four weeks, watch and see where everybody goes. I have taken more executive calls than anything else. Like people, are like, hey, what do you think about this company? I'm moving over here. I'm thinking about a new position. This recruiter called me over here. There's a lot of movement going on in the industry right now and a lot of exciting things happening. And I can't tell you how many people keep asking, hey, where do I move if I go to Austin? So <laughs> that's a whole other story. Listen, so, the other one that rhymes with it is Boston. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you've got the best universities, healthcare providers, food, culture, sports. <laughs> you know? They're going to have to put you in the mayor's development counselor. Yeah. So. <laughs> City of so, champions, you know, our mayor is now, you know, a cabinet member. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in Boston. So, so. well, hey, everyone, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Be on Disrupt TV. Um, this is episode number 219. We're so happy to have you and catch us on episode 220, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, all Fridays. And uh, of course, happy to see you. Have a great Friday and have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Thanks.